having grown from two people in this company to 2,000, I'm running a company that has superior business results that people really enjoy working at. If I couldn't do that, I probably wouldn't want to be in business, but I think the message that's important to take away is you can do that, and not only can you do it, you should do it because your competitors probably aren't. And that's where you can really kill it is by being the company that's great to work at and has a good business. So get rid of these drags on people's performance, be completely inclusive, build a culture, if you will, a business society where people can be their best and do their best work and you will have a better company. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome, everybody, to the Best Self-Management Podcast. My name is Shane Metcalf. I'm David Hassel. On this podcast, we explore how to create highly engaged and highly performing organizations by helping people become their best selves. I'm really excited today. I have a uh, really cool guest. We have Steve Zom joining us, who is the president and chief culture officer of Procore. Steve is responsible for human resources, learning, development, and facilities and real estate at Procore, the leading provider of construction software for facility owners, general contractors, and specialty contractors. Steve is focused on the creation and scaling of positive workplace culture as a sustainable competitive advantage for achieving superior business results. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Shane. I'm happy to be here. It's great having another uh, chief culture officer. There's not that many of us out there. And it's just so cool to see that position get elevated as we start to really understand the value and the business impact, not only, you know, separate from the human impact of focusing on culture. Yeah, it's something that as a title, it's meant to invite this whole discussion. It's meant to invite the question around why do you have a, a senior executive at Procore designated as the chief culture officer. And the reason is, is pretty simple. It's because we see it as a differentiator in the marketplace, both for talent as well as for our customers. We want our customers to know that Procore takes culture very seriously and that we view a positive culture as driving superior business results. So that's title tends to elicit those same kind of questions from people like, uh, why would you call yourself that? And I think, unfortunately, it still is a conversation that is not obvious. It's something that uh, people don't realize that business invest in culture because culture improves the business. That's something that I see as fundamental. And as we go through this discussion, I'll try and talk a little bit about how our culture has affected uh, Procore's actual business. That's great. And as we connected just before when we started, you know, you were one of two co-founders and now you're a 2,000-person company. I'm curious, like, how early on did you guys, did you assume that title and really be thinking about culture as a strategic advantage for the company? The title is fairly recent, uh, within about the past two years or so, and know that I 
came on and started working with Tui Kordimash, our CEO, who was actually the, the founder in 2002. I came on in 2004. And we did not need a chief culture officer in 2004. What we needed was somebody to figure out how do we go to market? How do we price? How do we sell? And all of those roles when you're a two-person startup, and then we scaled rapidly to a huge growth number of six people, Procore was struggling from 2004 until about 2011, 2012, struggling, I say, to find product market fit because we had a great uh, web-based application, a classic SaaS software whose users didn't have any internet access. So think about that. Uh, The main user for Procore is the construction worker on the job site. The internet hadn't made it to the job site. We naively believed that Wi-Fi would fulfill that need. It doesn't. Wi-Fi covers a job site trailer. Job sites are huge. They can be tens or even hundreds of acres. Uh, and you're not going to get there with Wi-Fi sitting in, in one trailer. So until internet made it onto smartphones, onto tablets, we weren't really seeing that product market fit. So if I look at Procore's growth, even as recently as 2014, when we took our first round of true venture capital, up until that point, we'd been financed by angel investors locally here in Santa Barbara, California. Come 2014, now you have iPads, you have iPhones and Android smartphones, and you have 4G moving to LTE. So now you have the speed, you have the bandwidth to get internet to the job site. That's when we started to get product market fit and our employee numbers with that financing in 2014 moved from about 100 to where we are today, six years later, at just a little bit over 2,000 worldwide. So big growth. But you guys just knew that 4G and iPhone were right around the corner, right? It was all the vision. It was just brilliant, visionary entrepreneurship. Not at all. Sometimes you just get lucky, you know, and, and, and what kept us going during that whole time was one, Tui's love for construction, which is deep. It's rooted in his experience from the time he was a kid. And for me, not having that long history of love for construction, what kept me going were the reactions of the clients who were using Procore with Wi-Fi, who were on smaller job sites and could use it from a job site trailer or on a custom home, for example, which is where we started. Now the business is about the largest facilities, the biggest sports stadiums, hospitals, universities, everything under the sun. But back then, it was about the client in a small custom home builder who said, this software is changing the way that construction is done. And as an entrepreneur, when you see that, when you hear your customers that the excitement in their voices when they use your product and they say, this is changing the way my business works, that keeps you going. And luckily, uh, especially after some rather strained conversations with our spouses, um, then the internet made it to the job site. That made everything a lot easier. But I'll tell you, one thing we struggled with was that in 2014, I guarantee you that software engineers weren't saying to themselves, If I play all my cards right, if I do everything right with my career preparation, I can go work for a construction software firm. 
that wasn't important to anyone. We we weren't on the, the map. The sexy new construction company. Exactly, right? And not only that, but we're in a tertiary employment market. We started the company in Santa Barbara, California, which is 90 miles north of Los Angeles. It's not as if we're nowhere near Silicon Valley. So we're competing with engineers uh, or for engineers, software engineers coming out of school and they're heading off to Silicon Valley, they're head heading off to Los Angeles or they're not even coming to California if they're not in state to come work for us. So how do we solve that? And that was the first problem that we turned to the solution of saying, if we build a great company to work at, we can attract these candidates and we can get them on site. Once we have them, they'll figure out what we do for our customers is fantastic. And it's really rewarding to work for a company where your software can directly affect the users and you're able to see that. That's awesome. How do you know that your culture is working? You know what I mean? Because every different company is gonna have a very unique culture based on the foundational values of the people in that organization. What are the indicators that you're looking at for a healthy culture versus where things start to fray at the edge? I have three things on that, that that I would list. One is why are people coming to work for you? So what is it that they keep talking about? So when you're a smaller company, you're looking to attract the very best people. You're not going to have a great company without finding the very best people that you can. I don't care what you do in your company. If the people aren't invested, if they aren't the type of people that you look around your team and you say, I am so happy that these people are on my team, that's just table stakes to compete in today's world. So number one, whether your culture is working is, are the people who are coming to join your company are they listing the culture as one of the primary reasons that you're joining your company? Are they saying to themselves, and when you're smaller, it's not as if there are headlines about how great your company's culture is when you're 25 people. But when you're in those interviews and you ask that question, so why do you want to work for company X? If they don't mention culture, then it's not working. It's not a big deal because they most likely, especially at a smaller company size, were referred in by one of your current employees. And if right out of the gate, they start talking about, well, you pay really good wages and that's what my, my buddy so-and-so told me, then that's not culture-led, right? But if you have the opposite conversation or a different conversation, I should say, where people are coming to work with your company because of the culture, you know that it's working. So that's, that's one part that I would say. I want to talk directly to you listening in for just a moment. If you're enjoying these interviews, the concepts we discuss, and you're committed to equipping your managers to develop highly engaged and high-performing teams, there's some additional resources that we know can help. Access the forever free best self-management certification at 155.com forward slash academy for core management skills that unfortunately are not taught in business school. Visit 155.com forward slash services to sign up for our manager accelerator program to reorient your managers around the essential skills needed to conduct effective one-on-ones, offer meaningful feedback, and coach their teams to greatness. If you want exceptional software that integrates beautifully with our education and training, visit 155.com today. 
Now, Steve, when you, when you started out, you mentioned and used the term positive culture. And I'm curious, like, what does that mean to you or, or even specifically for Procore? What are the attributes of the Procore culture that, that make it a positive culture that are important when you're trying to influence it or craft it? Yeah, when I think about a positive culture, I think about a culture that is aspirational in terms of the employees. When they come to work, they are fully invested in what the vision of the company is, what the mission of the company is, uh, and what the values of the company is or what the values of the company are, I'm sorry. but And all of that is typically, by most companies, if they have a clear vision and a mission and values, that's language. So they're invested in that language. And that would be the second way that I think you know that your culture is working, because you hear the language. You use the language on a daily basis. You make decisions in the context of the language of your values. You see strategies being formulated and justified based upon the mission, the what you do, or the vision, the why you do it. So Procore's vision is to improve the lives of everyone in construction, but the what we do in order to to get to that vision is to connect everyone in construction on a global platform. And if you start hearing those phrases, if you start seeing those in planning documents, if you start hearing people talk about the values for Procore, those are openness, ownership, and optimism. If you hear people talk about the values when they complement others that they work with, they're embracing the language. So that's point two on how do you know that it's working? How do you know that you have a positive culture? What would the opposite of a positive culture be? Something that is fear-based something that is very much command and control, something where you have uh, communication that is mostly focused on the meeting after the meeting. So people are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to bring their opinion. They're afraid to disagree with each other Mm -hmm. in front of other audiences, yet they work the back channels obsessively. Those are, to me, all indicators of a negative culture. If you have a feeling from your employees that, the culture is something that is stated, but not acted upon, then that would be a negative culture. What would be an example of that would be if you tolerate what we call the brilliant jerk. So do you have a person on staff who is incredibly effective at their job in terms of bringing projects in on time, making sure that things are profitable, making sure that the business goal for that quarter is met, but no one wants to be on that person's team or it's considered a badge of honor that you survived working with that individual, that's the brilliant jerk. If those are the values of your company and that person is within the values, then that's a culture that kind of gets what it set out to do. If the values aren't about being that jerk, if you're brilliant, in other words, if the values say one thing, but you tolerate the employee who's the brilliant jerk, then you're not living by the values as a company. You're telling every single employee that profitability or getting things done is more important than this whole culture thing. Then that's a culture that's not succeeding. Yeah, that, yeah we've seen that a lot. I'm curious, I want to double click on the on the language piece because I think this is the thing that more and more companies and leaders are, are, are figuring out. But 
so many don't really do it well. They take all this time to write some mission and vision statement and write down their values. They put it on their website, they put it on the wall, and then nobody talks about it ever again. And then the culture drifts away from that. That breed, you know, there's a gap between the actual culture and the stated culture, it breeds cynicism, and then you get all the negative things. So I even met one CEO who took it so far that they weren't even allowed to write the values down. Everyone just had to know them. Uh, and that was their way of, of making sure that they were actually alive. Uh, but I'm curious. Um, what did you guys do intentionally to make sure that that didn't just happen? That that you know that you brought those values and, and the mission into the conversations. I think there's three things that you can do to make sure that the language prospers and that the the culture prospers, and to drive the values. Um, the first one is to hire and fire as I kind of just went through, according to the values of your culture. So I'm going to assume here that you've written down your, your vision and your mission and a set of values. And a pro tip on that, fewer is better. I, my last company, we had seven. This company, we have three. Three is infinitely easier. We started with 10 and we just reduced it down to four. Good. Everyone wants to pile on with their favorite value and list it on your value set. Resist that if you can But anyway, you can hire and fire to the values. The ability to fire according to the values I've covered with with the brilliant jerk. See the opportunity when it just crosses that line. And you'll know this when it crosses that line and negates the values one too many times. The opportunity to let that person go. And they're not a bad person. They've been rewarded for working this way. Let's remember that, right? But the opportunity to let that person go sends such a clear signal to everyone else in the company who has been struggling with this cognitive dissonance between what the values say on on the wall, what the language says, and how this person has steadily, in some cases, been promoted, been rewarded, been given more responsibility. And it's understandable why they get that responsibility, because they execute. And at the end of the day, the business has to execute. But there's that tension that every leader has between when is the execution overriding the culture, right? So, and then hiring, do you hire according to the job description or do you take a chance because the fit with the values is so tight and so good that you can go out of bounds on the job description? Can you be flexible on some of the certifications or the graduate diplomas or the college diplomas or anything else that allows you to say, we are bringing this person on and we are taking a gamble here because they are so clearly an embodiment of what we see in our values. Can you do that as a leader, as someone who hires within your organization? So that would be the first way to to make sure that your culture doesn't become empty words, is higher and fire to it. The second way is to manage to it. So when you do performance reviews, if you do performance reviews, when you do promotions, when you recognize effort, do you use the language of your values? Do you use the language of your culture? Do you put everything in the context of your culture as to say the reason this person is being recognized publicly for a job well done is yes, they were effective, but they did so in the right way. So do you manage, and it it could be quarterly performance reviews, it could be, or your annual review, how often you do it. When Procore does their employee 
review process, performance reviews, it's all in the context and the language and the ability to rate someone's performance is all done in the context of those values. So that's, that's the second way. The third way, and, and I'll, I'll sum it up here, is to, to train to it. And that's what everyone naturally falls to is the first way. Oh, let's just keep giving people training classes. Let's you know, keep you know, repeating this. Yes, you have to do it that way. You have to train to it because it's just like a language training class. But I would emphasize that what we found great success with is really the orientation experience. So right when employees come into the company, and this took us a few years to figure out, look, our orientation used to be the same as most small companies' orientation. It was a PowerPoint deck that you went through in 45 minutes before you were shown to your desk, and hopefully the hiring manager showed up within the first few days. That was how we did it. But as we grew and as we went into this hyper-growth stage, we started to embrace longer and longer orientation periods, and we ended up doing a five-day orientation and throughout that, and remember, I do construction software. So everyone in the company has to figure out what the heck is the construction industry? 90% of our employees have no construction experience. Then they also have to learn about, well, okay, I get the construction industry. What does Procore the product do for that industry? So we have to train them about the construction industry by using our product so that they can have empathy for our customers and understand the value that we provide. And the third thing is beyond the construction industry beyond Procore the product is Procore the company. How do I do my best work at Procore the company? And the way that you do that largely is using the language of the values, the language of our culture. So a five-day orientation is not crazy. Let me put that out there for everyone. You know, I love that training is the third one because I think training can either be implemented and, you know, essentially is swimming upstream of, hey, we actually don't practice any of this stuff, but we're going to say that we do because we're training you on it. And so it's actually going to just be so hard or the entire culture is actually in alignment with what we're training people on. And so it actually becomes just just riding the tailwind of it. I've been exploring this idea that the best cultures in the world are willing to take semi-controversial stands on their values and that like a really good value come to life is probably going to piss some people off. It's going to make it really clear that I either love this place or get me away from it. Curious if uh, how that relates to your experience and if you have any examples, if it does. Yeah, I, I think one danger that you run into is that um, as soon as people figure out that this language matters, and if the language is not necessarily moving them towards their goals, they will try to do what we call to weaponize the values. So remember that I talked about one of our values is openness at Procore. And so then we had this phrase emerge in the spirit of openness. Now here comes the weaponization part. In the spirit of openness, you're a jerk. And, and, and like people would just be disrespectful and like, come on, like, don't yeah, we, do that. We did a training on radical candor and then people would be like, cool, well, I got some radical candor for you, buddy. And it's like, no, that's the, totally missing the point. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I think you have to watch out for the weaponization. And again, it's how do you live the values? So, so much of this is day to day. You cannot make your values. It would be like trying to learn a foreign language and putting posters on the wall. It's not going to happen. Putting the flashcards and gluing those to the wall. You have to speak the language. But with culture, not only do you have to speak the language, you have to do the language, Right. 
You have to do things that are in accordance with your values. And the moment you don't, you lose the trust of the employee base. Culture becomes something that is convenient, but not required. It's like any other culture, if we think about any other institution or nation state or society, as soon as the values of that society become inconvenient and the leaders of that culture decide not to pay attention to the values, then the legitimacy of the entire culture gets called into question. Steve, I'm curious, you know, because I think uh, companies have our, our core values as a company, but I think that even a, a layer below that is, is the founder's foundational values, the values that you've brought in from your own life. And I'm curious, you know, any of the core values in Procore that really actually are kind of your own values or your co-founders, the CEO's values, you know, like where did you bring your own selves into the picture? Yeah, it's an interesting question for two reasons. One, I, I don't think you'd ever have a set of values that the founders fundamentally disagreed with. So we went through and and we came up with our values by doing an offsite with about 20 early employees and having a moderator who walked us through a, a lot of exercises. You know, if you were a car brand, what car would you be? That classic type of ideation around who do you want to be as a company. And there has to be fundamental agreement at that time. I would also call out the earlier that you do your values, the better. But the cautionary tale has always been that if a founder or a set of founders becomes the culture, then doesn't the culture necessarily become diluted over time. And, and this was really interesting for me that, uh, look, Procore is the largest company that I've ever worked at. So I've done other companies before this, but my last company, uh, I think we topped out at about 400 employees. So this is yet again, a whole nother scale. And, and the story that I always believed was that as more employees joined in different offices around the country or around the world, that it would be kind of like um, adding more water on top of a sugar cube in a cup, right? So it's sweet at first, it's, it's very sweet, it's very strong sugar, but as you add more water, let's say you have a gallon jug that this one sugar cube is in, then it's gonna get diluted and more diluted and you might catch a hint of that culture as you add more employees, the employees being analogous to the water in this twisted metaphor. And that's what I believe. I believe that as your company grows, it becomes less of a unique place to work and has a weaker culture. And the analogy, in my experience at least, has proven to be completely backwards. And I'll tell you why. Because remember that I was trying to create a company that was a great company to work at. And so in order to do that collectively as an executive team, we invested in this culture and we used hey, we're a great company to work for and you won't believe what our products do for the construction industry as the initial way to attract people. Well, over time, what happens is now with a 2,000 person company, almost you know, 1,990 of those people have come in the ensuing time since we wrote down those values. They all joined Procore in no small part because of the culture. So they all become defenders and promoters of that culture, of those values. So the one thing they don't want to have happen is have the culture get weaker or have that dilution that I was referring to earlier. They want it to be more 
because they want that decision that they made to join, again, a construction software company. They want that to be the right decision because look at what an amazing experience that they've had by betting on not only the company, the business model, but also the culture. They all brought their own sugar cubes and plopped them right in there as well. It's a great way of putting it. And it's, I think the founder mythology, especially in Silicon Valley, says, oh, you should have been here when. I think for Procore that the most exciting times it's, it's always been interesting. It's always been exciting. But excitement at scale, being a global company with not just one product, but over a dozen different products in multiple countries with a workforce that's all around the globe, that's hugely exciting if it's still a great company to work for, as it was in 2014 when we started this whole scaling adventure. Is it as good? And I think that employees who were at Procore then and now would say, it's different. We fully admit that, but it is great and it still has a positive culture. Yeah, I think one of the things that Shane and I were worried about, we were 30 people in January of 2018 and we grew from 30 to 70 to 200 in the space of 24 months. And we always have this annual gathering where we bring everyone together for a company-wide retreat in Januarys. And I think when we went from 30 to 70, we were like, oh my God, can, you know, can, can we actually scale the magic? Can we have this feel as good? And we were surprised, like, oh my God, it's, it's even better. And then we did the same thing when we were 200 and really blown away because now you have so much more diversity of types of people and where they're from and backgrounds and just add it like it was really additive. And I think the idea of scaling culture and that it can be done was was exciting for us to experience firsthand. But I'm curious how you think about the culture evolving over time, because there are differences between a hundred person company, 500, a thousand, 2000. Um, you know, what are the things that change? Because you said the company is different, but it's great or better. Um, what are some of those dynamics? There's a dynamic just around scale. And the dynamic is multiple time zones, multiple locations, multiple floors within a single office building. In Austin, Texas, I have uh, 600 employees who pre-COVID were on seven different floors within, within an office tower, which is different than the suburban office campus that we have in Carpinteria, which is different than the downtown Manhattan office or the Sydney, Australia office, right? So different time zones, different ways of mixing all of that changes, but I think if you can continue to promote the language, then it attracts people who are willing to live within that culture. And, and let's be clear, it's not a monoculture from the standpoint that every person has to have the same personality or that every person has to be alike. All they're saying in any company, it's a voluntary assembly of people united for a common purpose. And they can come and they can go whenever they want. But you have people who are voluntarily selecting into your company because they say, yes, we're willing to live within that culture. I think that's a, it's an important note that we haven't really touched upon is you want to be clear during your recruitment process, during the interviewing process. You want to say, look, we are hiring in no small part and hopefully in large part because of the cultural fit here. And you will, that becomes self-reinforcing as well. So. so Steve, really curious, you know, having a very strong culture, having a lot of attention on culture, and then 2020 comes around and we have COVID hit. We have George Floyd 
murdered and the protests, the uh, kind of ripping the lid off of a lot of racial tension. And I'm curious how, you know, what your observations of how culture responds to crisis and what you've been learning in this process. Yeah, so two different crises there, um, both, you know, on a scale that, that we haven't really seen before, at least during the lifespan of, of this company. I think on, on the COVID side, culture can really affect the ability at that crisis for everyone to turn on a dime and to say, okay, now we're working from home. So we have 2,000 employees all working from home right now. Nobody is in any of our offices. And for that to, to take place, you need to have people understand who they are. Uh, you know, I, I like to say that uh, a crisis is a horrible time to find out what your values are as a company. It's a great time to have your values as a company. And so our ability to pivot and to have people lean in and be optimistic about it was super important. I think the other thing is that if you don't have a higher purpose, if you don't have a vision such as to improve the lives of everyone in construction, then that helped everyone know, look, that is our true north. That is what we're doing. There is a greater industry out there that relies upon us. We cannot just give up. Now, we can't simply because we have to go home. We have to continue to execute. And for our employees who are invested in that vision, our ability to turn around and do things for the construction industry, which included everything from changes in our product to information about the current state of the construction market to an employment board for people who are suddenly out of work because their projects were shut down or had been delayed, all of those steps that we can take to again, stay true to that vision helped us really execute during COVID. So that's been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I just love that building companies that are rooted in a higher ideal. If you don't have that, I think culture is going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. Yeah. You have to have a vision and you have to write it down. If you take nothing away from this podcast other than that, <laughs> yeah. and, and we've recently, we've had some of our largest clients in the construction industry have reached out to us at Procore and said, hey, why is it that your people always seem to be so engaged and so willing to help and so invested in their jobs and helping us as clients? Can you help us with our cultures? And what we've found, and these are large construction companies, I'm talking about you know half a billion dollars annually plus in construction projects, and we would ask them, well, can you, I, I'm sure you have your vision and your mission statement, all that stuff is old hat in the, in the tech world, I would say. And yet we had companies that came to us and go, well, we all know what it is. We just haven't really taken the time to write it down. And, and then I love when you like, okay, great. Well, everyone in the room, write it down and let's see how uh, accurate we all are and completely desperate. And so what we did actually about a year ago, obviously we've had to put this program on pause but we started running a program we called Culture Academy, where we would have senior executives from our largest clients come in and we would talk to them about how to address a big issue in construction, which is there are numerous unfilled construction jobs. Again, this was last summer. And how, when they compete for talent, how can they attract the very best people? And then how can they also win not only the best people, but also jobs? And how can they be a better company, a more sustainable company 
in terms of peak performance. And our feeling, I've already expressed that, that I say that a large part of that for Procore is culture. So that's how we started having these seminar series called Culture Academy, which was tremendously received by our customer base and which unfortunately we've had to put on pause due to, again, due to COVID. So, Wow, that's really cool. I want to pivot real quick because, you know, uh, the conversation we had leading up to this, uh, we were talking about diversity and inclusion, especially in light of, of recent events. And I love the kind of reframe and the leadership that you said you have there where you actually say inclusion and diversity and really putting a, a, an emphasis and focus on inclusion. Can you share a little bit about how you guys think about that and what, you know, what inclusion means to you? What do you actually do practically to create an inclusive environment? How have you built that in and how does that map to the values? I think that, and, and this is one of the things that I believe is front and center about the national debate that is going on right now in terms of, of race in America is that if you are a person like me, a white male, the tax that not being included puts on people is horrendous. It, I, I don't think there's any other term that would be appropriate for it. And it's, it's also, I believe, horrendous because not only do I not pay that tax, I'm not aware that others are paying the tax. And I think for Procore, we looked at it as one definition of culture, what, what I call my shorthand definition is, what does it feel like to work there? What does it feel like when you pull up, when you get off the subway or you get off the bus or you pull into your parking spot, whatever it is, however you get to work, and you're approaching the front door to the office that you used to work in. Now it's your first Zoom click of of the day, I guess. What does it feel like? What's going through your head? Are you excited? Are you looking forward to it? Look, everyone's not going to be excited every day, but do you have more good days than bad days? Do you look back at your year and say, wow, I really enjoyed working with those people. I really enjoyed the challenges that I was up against. Is that your mental construct? Because I would say to you that that is the culture that you were working in. What is it like to work there, right? And if you don't feel included as part of the team that you work with, if you feel like you are tolerated but not welcomed, if you feel that you have a seat at the table as long as you don't X, Y, or Z, that puts limits on, on your performance. It puts limits on your engagement, and it sure as heck prevents you from getting to a state of flow where you are doing your best work. If I'm a company, if I'm an executive or a manager at a company, shouldn't one of my goals be, look, I have to run a business too. I have to bill my customers. I have to deliver my product. I have to support my product. All of those things as the people who are managing the company. But doesn't one of the goals to enable the success of the business have to be, how do I let my people do their best work? Every single day, I should be pushing to get every employee that can into that state of flow. Can that possibly happen if somebody is showing up going, I wonder if this is gonna happen? Am I gonna feel marginalized? Am I gonna be subject to a microaggression? Am I gonna be berated by a manager who doesn't realize that I'm a parent with three kids, that I am caring for an elderly parent, 
that I have to deal with uh, this tax because of my race or my ethnicity or my religion or my sexual orientation or my gender. If those things are going on, how can that person be their best self at work? I just don't see it happening. So it has to be the role of management to remove those taxes, to lift that burden, to say here, at least at work, as bad as society may be, as rough as it may be out there here, you have some place where you can be creative, where you can solve problems, where we respect each other, where we treat each other with dignity. That shouldn't be that hard. Where the analogy breaks down is that the company isn't getting the tax money. You know, they aren't actually benefiting. And I loved how you said that yeah. the company pays a tax too for all of this. And that it's not just, you know, the inclusion and diversity equity conversation isn't, oh, well, how can we just be altruistic and actually help the individuals? This is selfish. The company is going to massively benefit if they can get this right. Shane, thank you for pointing that out because I am always going to put my comments in the context of improving the business results. I love the fact that Procore has a positive culture and because of the positive culture, it drives positive business results. However, if the world was such that the only way to drive positive business results was to have a negative command and control culture, two things. One, I wouldn't be investing in that culture, so I probably wouldn't be working in business. I'd be some kind of academic because you can tell right. I love talking about this stuff. Same. And But if I had to do bad in order to have great results, which is how some people, many people, understand capitalism, I don't agree with it. I think that capitalism can be the best system that we have. It's not perfect as a system. People can abuse it. People can make it do the wrong things. You can have a, a company with Solid business results, that's a horrible place to work at. It can happen, and but people blame capitalism. I don't blame capitalism. And the reason I don't blame capitalism is because I'm running and having grown from two people in this company to 2,000, I'm running a company that has superior business results that people really enjoy working at. If I couldn't do that, I probably wouldn't want to be in business, but I think the message that's important to take away is you can do that. And not only can you do it, you should do it because your competitors probably aren't. And that's where you can really kill it is by being the company that's great to work at and has a good business. So get rid of these drags on people's performance, be completely inclusive build a culture, if you will, a business society where people can be their best and do their best work. And you will have a better company. You just will. I, I don't know how you get there otherwise. So, I just love your stand on that. I mean, obviously, we're so aligned. This is exactly what, this is the reason we exist is to, you know, is to further this message and help companies uh, embody that. So really great to hear your perspective on that. All right. Well, it's been fantastic uh, talking with you today. Thank you so much. Um, really appreciate uh, all your insights. That's David, been, thank uh, you. Really great conversation. It's been wonderful talking to you guys, and, and I really appreciate uh, you providing me with a forum to put some of these ideas out there. Hopefully others can find it useful. 
And I certainly applaud the fact that Shane does have the, the chief culture officer title as well. And I am so glad to hear that your business is growing and scaling. You're definitely in hyper growth. And if the positive trends that I see out there in the, the workplace continue, I think you're going to have nothing but huge growth ahead of you for, for your firm as well. Well, I appreciate that. Where can people find more on Procore and you if they want to look things up? It's all there at, at Procore.com. And just go to our website. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of content there. If you're in the construction industry and you want to not only learn more about Procore, but learn more about issues of how to run a better construction business, how to have a more inclusive industry, the construction industry obviously is challenged in terms of diversity, especially along the lines of gender. Then uh, we also have free online courses at learn.procore.com that are absolutely uh, part of our effort to educate the industry. We also have programs around promoting women in construction at uh, procore.org, which is our social impact arm as well. So please be sure to check that out. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Thanks very much, David. Shane, great talking with you. You too. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.